Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's nothing special about opening up a text message on my phone. All I have to do is take it out of my pocket, lift it to my face, and read the message. Huh. Alok's away and they want me to host Babbage this week. Yeah, hello! Over the years, unlocking my phone has become easier and easier. When I first got a cell phone, oh, so many years ago, with the weight of a brick, I had to type in a series of numbers. But in the last decade came the fingerprint scanner and now facial recognition. It's just one of the ways that an identification measure based on an aspect of my individual biology, or biometrics, has changed the way that we interact with and operate technology. Just today, my finger unlocked my laptop and my face facilitated the payment of the coffee I drank before I came into the office. Biometric authentication serves as a much more convenient and efficient key than a password to some of the most essential things in life. But as ever with technology, that's not the end of the story. Cybersecurity researchers are worried about the potential for hacking and the value of the personal information that could end up in the wrong hands. What's more, it's feasible that as generative artificial intelligence comes of age, spoofs of my face or voice could leave the door wide open to hackers. We've already seen the power of deepfake audio and videos, for example. As biometrics are being used more and more widely, and generative AI improves, what can be done to reduce these risks? Hello, and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, standing in for Alok as your host this week. Today, we'll explore the rise of biometrics as a security technology. And we'll take you on a thought experiment, looking at a hypothetical future tech scenario. What if AI becomes powerful enough to render biometrics nearly obsolete? How can we possibly keep ourselves safe online? To lay the groundwork for this futuristic scenario, our producer, Jason Hoskin, has been investigating the security downsides to biometric authentication and what that might mean for the future of technology. So biometrics are a way of authenticating someone. They're, in a sense, very old. When you recognize someone on the street, you're using a biometric. Bruce Schneier is a security technologist at Harvard University. He's also the author of A Hacker's Mind, which came out earlier this year. When you recognize someone's voice on the telephone, you're using a biometric. And this is a way to do that same sort of thing on computers. They are more convenient than passwords. They are sometimes more secure than passwords because you don't choose good passwords. They have other failure modes in that they're not secret. My voice, my face is very public. So they're good security systems. They're not panaceas. 
And, you know, whether they're suitable depends a lot on the details of how they're used. Biometrics are starting to pervade every part of our life. For anyone who's traveled internationally, getting through an airport requires biometric authentication. Katina Michael is a professor in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. And sometimes it's a full body scan. Other times it's a scan on your passport facial ID. And so we're trying to look at, through the immigration process, whether the person that is depicted in the passport is actually the person that's presenting there to get through immigration or customs or so forth. And at the same time, most of the nation states have actually bought into the notion of RFID, radio frequency identification. So your passport not only has an ID number, not only carries your passport image, but also has an embedded chip in it. The camera at the security gate will then compare its findings to the data that's on the chip inside the passport. Pretty much it's a match, it's an image. And if the pixels look the same between two images after they've been processed for matching, then it's a direct match. And so we are now using different kinds of algorithms to authenticate. It's all based on statistics. And if there is a great percentage of matching, then there is an authentication. If there is no match, then you're denied access. But as biometric authentication is rolled out more widely, it's important to consider the technology's risks, too. Last year, some security researchers noticed that shoebox-sized biometric devices that had been found in Afghanistan were being sold on eBay. It turns out that they contained lots of personal data. Those devices are little robust computers. They look a bit like a digital camera and they are able to capture both irises at the same time. They can capture all 10 fingerprints and they can also take a photo of your face. Matthias Marx is a security researcher in Hamburg, Germany. I first came across this biometrics device when I read about it online in a news magazine, and the magazine told that the Taliban captured U.S. biometrics devices. And I wanted to learn what can you do with them, are the data on those devices protected? And very late in the night, I found an offer on eBay, and after half a day thinking about it, I decided to spend $600 on this device to buy the first one. But after that, we bought many more devices. And what did you find on the devices? On the first devices we had, there was software to capture biometric data. For example, from one member of the U.S. military that included all fingerprints, iris prints, and also photos from the face. And the data we found included GPS data. So we were able to tell when those devices were used last and where. Matthias has found more than 10 of these devices on eBay. He told me about the one which contained the most personal data. We found iris scans, fingerprints, names, and so on from more than 2,600 Afghans and Iraqis. Why were the American forces even capturing and storing all of this data? In Afghanistan, they couldn't use passports because most people do not have passports. So they decided to use biometric data because you cannot simply change your biometric data. 
And even after 10 years, you would probably have the same biometric face print, so to say. But that is also why such data are so dangerous. You cannot hide. But in the wrong hands, this could put people's lives at risk. How easy would it be for the Taliban, say, to access the data? Too easy. So there was no technical protection at all. They could simply start the device and that's it. There was a default password, but the default password is also documented in the manual next to the device. So there was no protection at all. And even people without technical background could use such a device. With a technical background, people could also try to combine databases of multiple devices to build a huge database. Why do you think that the devices are, are so insecure and don't have these sophisticated encryption methods? Maybe because they were lazy, maybe they were not aware of the dangers, or maybe they just didn't care. I cannot tell. Matthias warned that this example could be a sign of things to come. I expect that more incidents like that will happen. And I also expect that biometric databases somehow become available to the public, that it will be possible in the future that you walk around, take a photo of someone, and then you are able to tell this person's name or where the person works and so on. And this, of course, will change society because you are no longer anonymous in the outside world. When fingerprints or retinal scans are needed to unlock increasing numbers of devices or open more doors, the stakes become even higher when data is stolen. Biometrics has been studied for many years. Uh, one of the biggest risks we don't talk about a lot is that you can't recover from a failure. That's Bruce Schneier again. So if I have a password, my password gets stolen, I can create a new password. That's easy. If I'm using my thumbprint and it gets stolen, I kind of can't get another thumb. I mean, yes, you have two eyes and 10 fingers, but that really misses the point. That biometrics are not something you can create on the fly and have different for each site. They are singular. They are not secret, right? They're public. And they're all you've got. And there's a price we pay for convenience. But the convenience is really valuable, and that's why these systems are so powerful. It really is easy for you to pick up your iPhone, look at the screen, and it magically turns on because it recognizes your face. In the case of the iPhone, Apple promises that users' biometric data doesn't leave the device and is never backed up to the internet. That means that hackers won't be able to steal personal data from some central online repository. But as biometrics are used more widely in an Internet of Things or IoT future, where our smart devices are all connected and talk to each other, there's no guarantee that adequate security systems will be in place. A lot of these IoT devices that you're using, whether they be door locks or thermostats or drones or toys, have much less security, much less well-designed, well-written software, so they are more vulnerable. Apple has hundreds of engineers working full-time on the design of their phones. They have dozens of security engineers who are doing security. If you have something like a drone or a door lock or a thermostat, it's often designed offshore, ad hoc by a third party. A team comes together, writes the software, disperses. They're not paying attention to security as much because the market doesn't reward it. They're not sticking around, so there are no patches that can be written. I mean, it just really is a different type of software development. 
And as our software gets into these, I guess, less high-end applications, you're seeing a lot more of this ad hoc software, which is just less secure because there's less money being spent on its design. Bruce's recent book also highlights the threat of hacking using artificial intelligence. Generative AI might be able to create convincing audio or video deepfakes that could get into supposedly secure systems. One of the problems with biometrics is that they are not secret, that they are public. And a lot of these systems have to work hard at making sure that they can't be spoofed. I I just watched a video of someone who uh, used an AI-generated voice to fool a voice recognition system and get into his bank account. He did it over the phone. So there's an example of a biometric that has a new vulnerability. And that has a lot to do with how that biometric has been uh, implemented. I'm not going to throw away all voice authentication, but that particular implementation is vulnerable to synthetic voice. We use biometrics for authentication to get access to different things. And can I use AI to fake things there? I mean, it's not going to work for things like fingerprints or retinal scans, but for something created like a voice or a face, you could probably do that. Katina Michael explained that researchers have already demonstrated that generative AI can cause problems. For example, at the security gates in airports. While these matching techniques statistically work, an image might look like someone, but actually may not be someone at all. And we've even got studies that are proving to us that you can combine two faces, for example, two men that may look somewhat alike and may gain access through the biometric authentication process simply because it's 50-50. They look similar. And so duping a system, masquerading as someone, getting through defenses is increasingly becoming possible, especially when we don't have live detection in the biometric. So we don't know if a thing is real or it's just an image. I'm sticking up a photo of someone I want to look like because I want to gain access. And these are the things that sci-fi taught us is possible. And in reality, they are. So if we take the example of security gates, a hacker needs my physical passport, which contains the RFID chip or token, and the generative AI dupe of my face. They can then travel wherever they like as me. Katina told me about one way that technologists are innovating to avoid this type of hacking. The question is whether in the near future, those chips will be inside of us, not just within our passports. When someone's biometrics are stolen, and we've had millions of people's biometrics stolen, in the States, databases have gone missing. You know, you can't change your face. Okay, well, that system didn't work. Let's go to the the next one. The next one happens to be implants. We think that's the most effective. What's after biometrics, since we can do deep fakes and dupe systems? Well, it's the human implant. Bringing chips inside of us as implants could be useful in a number of ways. Chips in the past that have been implantable are a bit like the ones that we use in animals, and they carry an identifier that's unique on them. So imagine every person on the planet having an implant, perhaps at the age of 12, and it's a cylindrical microchip potentially housing secure components that allows you to do things like encryption. I could perhaps use it instead of an ATM card simply by using my hand. It may be placed between the thumb and forefinger of my hand in that webbing space 
or perhaps on my wrist, anything that allows me to have mobility in order to interact with a fixed or mobile device, a reader. So that could allow me to actually integrate all my applications, medical, financial, education-based, government-based, the list goes on and on, all of those vital pieces of infrastructure that we need to exist onto this one chip. And everything is controlled through that identifier. That identifier is unique to the individual and common across platforms. It's universal, it's open, and it's shared. I think the way that we weigh up the risk benefits, I think a lot of people will say, well, this would be fantastic. We always lose our keys. We always lose our wallet. We don't need to bring stuff with us. This sounds like an amazing future. It does, doesn't it? It is until we are subject to a hack. By inviting a chip into the body permanently, believing that it's the only way we can secure the identity of an individual, we forget that transferability can also happen remotely. So I can update, I can render the chip killed, as we say in the literature. We can download a virus onto it. We can render you unauthenticatable. I try to open my front door. Hang on a second. My ID has changed. I can't open my front door. I'm locked out or I'm locked in. And this kind of a dichotomy, control versus risk, and locked in or locked out of something that is actually rightfully yours, you are the owner of that asset, but you're not the owner of your body because of this chip that is inside of your body. This is a trade-off that we need to really think about. So a lot of people assume we will enhance security by introducing an implant that is permanent, can be with us everywhere we want, we can never lose it, we can't leave it behind, it can sync up to the outside world through the smartphone, we can always be authenticatable. This is a very interesting idea, which a great number of nations have actually written about now. It's no longer in science fiction, you know. We are increasingly seeing this in defense literature through the United Nations. These are all documents I've been reading recently. This is now becoming a reality. What's after biometrics since we can do deep fakes and dupe systems? Well, it's the human implant. And we have to make a choice as humans whether that's the way we wish to go or not. The risks go further than simply disabling the function of the implant, though. These chips could provide bad actors with a lot more information. In an implant world, what we're seeing is attacks becoming more and more personalised. It can also look at things like physiological characteristics. It may know my heart rate, my pulse rate, which direction I'm travelling in, whether I'm sweating, I'm cold, I have temperature rising. And this may be used to predict the kind of activity I'm involved in, in an accusatory way, as a 24 times 7 alibi. Was this person in this place and were they flustered? Was their heart rate pacing really quickly? And what we're looking here is not just a unique identifier, but something that behaviorally explains what kind of situation you are in. We call that human activity monitoring. But these sensors have to be always on and always connected. You can't live off the grid. I'm always alive. I'm always on. Do you think with all of this in mind, people really want implants and want chips? Studies we've conducted over time since 2011 indicate there has been changing sentiment to acceptability of these new technologies. British studies by banks indicated probably about 10 years ago that 7% of the population would fathom an implant. 
In Germany, other studies with a thousand people surveyed at tech conferences indicated the number was much greater, somewhere between 30 and 40 percent. But what we've seen consistently over a five-year period from 2011 onwards with a multinational survey in five different countries was that from a yes or no perspective, I will never take an implant or I will take an implant, what we're seeing is a shift. And the craziness here is we're so busy as a result of all of these vectors of messaging we're receiving that we're going, we don't have time even to take our keys out. You know, we don't have time to even write that password in because we're trying to authenticate like 50 times a day. How boring is that? You know, let's go straight to the implant. I can just wave my hand in front of that physical reader, that mobile reader, and I'm on. I'm on instantly. There goes all that wasted time logging in. So when do you think this will become a reality? When our current systems completely and utterly fail us, when the internet is completely drowned out by deep fakes, by generative AI, by generative adversarial network images that have been generated, and you don't know what's real or what's fake anymore, we're going to have a problem. A future where people have implants might seem far-fetched, but it's closer than you may think. I actually interviewed the first person to get an implant in his arm to pay for drinks at a Barcelona nightclub all the way back in 2007. And I have to say, a future where we rely on chip implants to pay for things and access our phones and cars and homes does not appeal to me. The good news is that there are alternatives. To understand the future of technologies more deeply, more broadly, and more radically, consider subscribing to The Economist. It's easy. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Now, if you're unsure about a subscription, you can take out a trial subscription by getting the first month free. And after that, you can cancel anytime and we won't charge you. So please join our community of people who are well-informed and changing the world. And if you're already a subscriber... Thank you. Coming up, biometrics, Gen AI, and the broader context of security and society. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Today on Babbage, we're investigating a hypothetical future where sophisticated hacking and generative AI renders our biometric-based security systems useless. We spent the first part of the show looking at the problems. But what about the solutions? How can we design for a safer but equally convenient future? That's something I asked Joseph Lindley. Joe is a design researcher at Lancaster University in Britain. He's been thinking about the future of authentication technologies. I think that the use of passkeys paired to biometrics is a great example of a success for classic human-centered design. 
we've gone from, if I imagine logging onto a digital banking service a few years ago, needing a username or number, a password, some various bits of memorable information, perhaps an offline authenticator as well, all just to get to my bank. And that's been replaced by looking at my smartphone, it authenticating me biometrically, and then I'm in straight away. So that's the kind of classic example, I think, of human-centered design working. So how can that human-centered design approach be harnessed to create a more robust security system in the age of generative AI? Things like voice spoofing, where hackers recreate my voice to steal money from friends and family. So my take on that, whether it's biometrics or some other way of authenticating people, why do we have to have so many things, one-directional transactions? If you think about it in terms of banking, there's no reason why you can't authenticate a transaction, make it, but have some kind of cooling off period during which you could say, hang on a minute, I just realized I was spoofed. If you apply the same logic to things that aren't quite as transactional as as finance, you know, let's imagine you've been hacked and an email has been sent on your account. You can't take back the email, but we can redesign those systems to say, hang on a minute, that was actually posted by a bad actor. So that's totally doable. And it's just slightly redesigning the systems that we have, most of which exist because they're legacy systems in the case of banking, because it wasn't possible to reverse if you were actually dealing with physical cash, that would have been much harder. So I do agree. I think that AI poses a huge threat in terms of the sort of attack you described, but we can solve those problems by changing the infrastructure that those attacks are trying to beat. So I think you've put your finger on a very profound point, and that is that our mental model of all of our technologies are basically upgraded versions of how it existed in an offline world. That's the way I see it. We've kind of got 21st century technologies and 19th century design decisions. Earlier on the show, Katina raised the idea of universal tokens, the idea that we might have chip implants, perhaps in our hands or arms, a little bit like chips that sometimes go into pets. Is that a realistic vision? I don't see why not at all. I think it's perfectly believable that we might end up there. I don't think it's fundamentally going to be very different, though. I think we'll be faced with a similar set of problems. Well, I guess it's a bit like an arms race. Whatever security measure or new design of a system to try and make it secure comes out, hackers and security experts will figure out a way around it. And fundamentally, I think that over the 20th century, we honed this idea of human-centered design, and it ultimately has made all kinds of technological things which are really easy to use. They encompass and hide the complexity of what's underneath. And that's great. It makes products that people enjoy using, can pick them up and quickly get going with. But at this point in history, where the things behind them are so complicated, that lack of transparency is really problematic. So whether it's implants or whether it's biometrics or whether it's some other kind of quantum security, I think what I would like to see changing is an attitude towards it where the underlying workings of what's actually going on are a bit more transparent. The onus should be on the app developers and the manufacturers to say, this is the procedure by which I am authenticating you. And by surfacing that, I think it will change behavior and allow users and allow everyday people to be more mindful about what's going on and probably have slightly more clean approaches to how they imagine their own security. Joe Lindley, thank you very much. Thanks. 
The thread of generative AI to biometric security that we've been pondering on today's show is a genuine possibility in the near future. So how can technology or legal and social mechanisms intervene to reduce the risk? We're just not used to these types of attacks. Scott Shapiro has been thinking about generative AI in the context of cybersecurity. He's a professor at Yale Law School, and he's just published a book called Fancy Bear Goes Fishing that explores the history of hacking. If somebody calls me up and sounds like my wife, I'm going to assume that the person is my wife. But as these attacks become more and more popular, we're going to start thinking, oh, this person sounds like my wife. Is this person really my wife? When do you think that might arrive? I think it already has arrived. I think we're already starting to see these types of voice synthesis attacks coming online. Certainly, we're starting to see generative AI produce much better phishing emails. For example, being an imposter for somebody at work or a friend or somebody who has private information. And it's going to take us a while to figure it out and to be more cautious. Do you think that generative AI may be rendering biometrics obsolete as a way of authenticating? I don't think so. I just think it means that we're not going to be able to rely just on biometric information in order to authenticate ourselves. But in some sense, that's not such a problem because the advice that cybersecurity experts give and I would give is that we should be using more than one factor when we authenticate ourselves. So I'm sure listeners know about two-factor authentication that would require two different ways of spoofing me, which seems very unlikely. I'm not going to transfer money to somebody just because they sound like my wife. I'm going to ask for something else like, you know, honey, what's the name of our cat or something like that, just to make sure that they are who they say they are. We're not used to this. I'm not used to questioning whether the person on the other end of the phone is my wife, but this is the new world that we're facing and we'll be able to get around it. Have you personally taken any steps to prevent this sort of crime from happening to you? Have you created sort of a safe word with people that you know so that people would know that unless they actually use this term, that they are not who they say they are? Yeah, sure, sure. I, I have not had a safe word yet, but I will say one thing. Anytime anybody asks you for something valuable, your password, your credit card, to wire money, I would just have some alternative way of verifying that that person is who they say they are. When Macmillan, my publisher, was hacked at a time when the book was supposed to go into publication, and so I couldn't send it the normal way. And my editor wrote me on his personal Gmail and said, can you send me the manuscript? And then I said, okay, let me just call you first. And so I called him just to verify that it was him. You know, you don't want to be sending your manuscript to a hacker before it gets published. And so that's what we did. And anytime there is something that matters to you, money, your manuscript, just have some alternative way to authenticate it. That's how to stay safe in this new world. So let's play out this what-if scenario of the show with you right now a little bit and sort of think, if we're in a world in which generative AI is putting a dent into the traditional way that we thought about biometrics and we have to come up with new solutions, 
What can be done technologically? You mentioned multi-factor authentication, but what else? Yeah, so in the book that I just published, uh, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, it's a history of cybersecurity and hacking. And one of the lessons from the history is that security tools are always dual use. They can either be used for good or they can be used for evil. And the question is, which way are we going to use them? So generative AI is obviously getting a lot of attention right now about how it can be used for attacks, but there's been a lot of work about using artificial intelligence for defense. But one of the points of the book that I hammer over and over again is that technology can be used in order to help us, but ultimately what's going to save us, what's going to really make the difference is changes in how we behave, how we think, and the policies that govern our actions. But what we should be doing is trying to identify these threats earlier and try to change our laws, our norms, our culture, so that we end up with better products that need to be fixed fewer times. Scott Shapiro, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. To conclude our thought experiment and get a clear-headed perspective on all the cybersecurity issues that we've been discussing on today's show, I'm now joined by The Economist Deputy Science Editor and all-round tech guru, Tim Cross. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ken. Now, we've been talking about the rise of biometric security and its vulnerabilities. Where do you see the technology going? Well, I think the big appeal of biometrics is convenience, and people often underestimate how important convenience is to security. So, you know, you can have hundreds of completely different, all random passwords that you use on every different website you visit. Most people don't. Most people have a few that they repeat because it's just too much work to keep track of all these things. And the great advantage of biometrics is it's not something you need to remember. It's something that you are yourself. You carry it with you wherever you go. You can't forget your fingerprint. Now, we've been asking whether generative AI may render our biometric security processes redundant. Is this a realistic threat? I think it's certainly one worth thinking about. And I guess maybe the way to think about it is biometrics is something that you are, whereas things like passwords are something that you know. And the distinction, I think, is quite important because you can't change what you are. I can't change my fingerprints. I can't change my retinal pattern. I can't easily change what my voice sounds like. I can very easily change a password. And the downside of that is if someone either can steal my biometric data or can figure out a way to impersonate my biometric data, there's not really much I can do about it. If you manage to take copies of my fingerprints and use them to unlock all kinds of important things about my life, I can't change my fingerprints. So once it's gone, once it's out there, it's out there for good. Let's put some meat on the bones. Let's look at a specific technology like voice cloning. It seems like the idea of using voice as an identifier is over. Yeah, I don't know if I'd necessarily put it that strongly, but I think there's definitely grounds to worry. We've had the technology to copy people's voices for, what, nearly a decade now. So you might argue that if people were going to do this, they'd have done it already. On the other hand, early iterations of things like WaveNet weren't that easy to use. And like all technology, it just gets cheaper and more easily available over time. So I think maybe it's a little bit early to say it's completely over, but I think there's definitely a level of healthy paranoia you should probably have, particularly if you've got anything important riding on it. Fair enough. But how do you think AI is going to change the equation in favor of the bad guys for security? 
Well, I think, like you said, it just makes it easier to impersonate at least some biometrics. You can use AI to clone people's voices. You can use AI to clone people's faces, potentially. There are some kinds of biometrics where it seems to me that won't be as easy to do. Like if you're talking about things like retinal scanning, I'm sure I could ask a generative AI to come up with a plausible looking human retinal scan. But we don't want a human retinal scan. We want my retinal scan specifically. And it's not going to have any idea what my retinal scan uniquely looks like. I suppose it all comes down to the trade-off. Again, you know, your biometrics are something that you are and something that you can't change, and that has upsides and downsides. You can imagine a scenario where, suppose you work somewhere really secure where you do need retinal scanning to get into the heart of the company or something. The camera that scans your retina is a camera, right? So maybe the bad guys could hack the camera to save an image, and then they've got an image of your retinal scan and they can use it whenever they want. So I think like all these things with security, you can come up with some ideal theoretical system, but in practice, you have to make trade-offs. And I think the trade-offs with biometrics have always been that they're very convenient, but if you do lose control of them, you kind of have no way to regain control again. And AI maybe tilts the balance slightly towards that downside. It makes it slightly easier to lose control of these things. Now, on the show, we've been looking at the question of implants. It's great for pets. Do you think that that might be a viable way for people to get around, or do you think there's going to be so much social resistance it's a non-starter? I think that's sort of very speculative. I guess it's kind of a halfway house between biometrics and then things like PIN numbers and passwords, because you can, in theory at least, take the chip out and replace it with another one. Do I ever see it becoming widespread? I'm not sure I do. It's just kind of inherently creepy. This is one of those conspiracy theories out there, isn't it? The COVID vaccine is all funded by Bill Gates, so he can put 5G microchips in your blood and track you wherever you go. That's a ridiculous conspiracy theory, and it's a conspiracy theory because people don't like the idea of that. And now we're saying, hey, what if this wasn't a conspiracy theory, but you could do it to yourself? I think it adds a little bit of convenience. I think it also has big potential privacy downsides and would just frankly struggle to get over the yuck factor. And I mean, you know, it's surgery. All surgery comes with risks. So yeah, you know, maybe if the future takes some properly dystopian turn, but I think it's probably always going to be a bit of a fringe option personally. Do you see a solution then to the fact that generative AI is going to put pressure on biometrics and we need to come up perhaps with a new paradigm for security? What could the outlines of such a new paradigm be? I think it's always a question of trade-offs. People have said for a long time, the most secure computer in the world is one that's filled with concrete in a steel safe at the bottom of the sea and switched off. But the point of the joke is that's completely useless. I think if it becomes easier to fake people's biometrics, you're essentially faking people's IDs. So you will continue to need a mixture of something that acts like an ID card, like a biometric, and then almost a sort of verification step that requires a secret that only you know. And you can kind of see this already with contactless payment in debit cards, for instance. So most of the time, I just beat my card and it waves the payment through. Every now and again, or when the bank's remote AI system thinks the payment looks a little bit suspicious, it asks me for my PIN. Because, you know, only I know my PIN in theory, and so it it acts as an extra layer of security. I could maybe see a world in which those kind of trade-offs become more common. So you can use your fingerprint, you can use your voice, whatever it is, to buy the product that you want. But if the bank thinks the transaction looks fishy, they might ask you for some extra information, you know, for a password or, or some sort of secret that only you know. I think a hybrid approach to security was the past. I think a hybrid approach to security will probably be the future. And the question will be just how we weight the different components. Tim Cross, thank you so much. Thanks, Ken. Our thanks also to Katina Michael, Bruce Schneier, Matthias Marks, Joseph Lindley, and Scott Shapiro. And thank you for listening to Babbage. If you want to hear more on the tech to uncover AI audio and video spoofing, scroll back to our episode from January called 
How to Detect a Deepfake, or click the link in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin. Our special thanks also to Leonie Tanzer for helping to make this week's show happen. Mixing and sound design was by Ting Lee Lim, and the executive producers were Jason Palmer and Marguerite Howell. Alok will be back with you next week. I'm Kenneth Kukie, or not, maybe I'm a voice clone. And in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.